Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brant. And this episode, The Modern Composer Refuses to Die with SST-232, the Elliott Sharp Soldier String Quartet Hammer Anvil Stirrup Record. And wow, this one is uh, another just a crazy ride with Elliott Sharp. Mm -hmm. Um, We've had some of these tracks before, but we've got an amazing guest who brings another level to this experience, I would say, Brent. Yeah, we've got Dave Soldier on the show. Yeah, and wow, that's all I have to say about that interview. It goes in so many twists and turns, and I don't know, it might have been the best first week in New York story of all time on the show, (laughs) I would say. Like, I I feel like he experienced and met everything that's cool about New York in a single week, his first week there. It's just wild, hey? Totally. <laughs> so good, so good. Now listen, before we get into spiels, I also want to mention that last week was a bit different because we were unsure whether Drew Canalette was going to make it as a guest because of the timing of that episode, but we got Drew in right. last last minute. So Do we need some to the, debrief? <laughs> we don't need to debrief. No, no, no. no. I just, I just want to acknowledge that the, the way in which that episode unfolded was a bit different as a result, but it was most important to make sure that we could get Drew in because there too, we had a great guest, some great info. Uh, we really learned a lot about all this other stuff that Drew has been involved in that we didn't realize, but that we like have in our record collections. Yeah. Um, but it just kind of unfolded a bit out of sequence. So it's a bit it's a bit weird, but it was still amazing. And again, a big thanks to Drew for squeezing us in, really. Yeah, busy guy. Big, big thanks to Drew. Yep. And then, again, before we get into spiels, one other thing. I got to ask you, what the hell are we doing the next two weeks? Because every year you change this on me, and every year you change it right before we do it. Right. So I need, I need to know what my homework is for the next two weeks. And so... Correct me if I'm wrong. Usually, we do our SST roundup and our top tens the next year. Like we do it like the first episodes back in the new year. But you're saying, uh-uh, this year we're doing it before the holiday break. Yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. okay. So <laughs> I got to do my homework like right now instead of during the holiday mm-hmm. break. Okay, gotcha. Now next week, next episode, we're doing is it the SS tree roundup? Is that it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So every SST-related artist that we have made a list of throughout 2022, we're going to go through that. That's new and re-releases, yes? Yes. Okay. The week after, our final episode of the year, that's top tens? That's right. I think I've got it. No, wait. And that one is also, that one is top tens and also honorable mentions as well, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Okay. Okay, good. I got it. You got I it. mean, I... This is all subject to change, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. I I tell you every year that I get prepared for both episodes at the same time, because I never know what you're going to tell me to do the night before we record. Um, Okay, well, I like to keep you on your toes, man. I know. At least I've got that sorted. Always interested to do the top tens and see where we've got some overlap, too. My guess is we've got at least two. Mm-hmm. that are going to overlap out of the 10. I think that's a really safe bet. I already uh, but... know your entire top 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Here we go again. How many more years of this? Five? Um, okay. Spiels. 
you go first. Okay. I want to talk to you, Ryan, about a record that you gifted me. It's this Meat Puppets live set for Special Forces Radio. Oh, yeah. Recorded at the Roxy Theater in L.A. on August 17th, 1986. So it was, this was right around the Up on the Sun, Out My Way era. And it's heavy on on tracks from those two releases. And along with some some Meat Puppets 2 stuff and some typically tasty covers. Yeah, that's that's like primo era puppets, hey? Mm-hmm. Totally blistering set. Uh, amazing recording. So I'm I'm leafing through the various inserts that came with it. Um, leafing or thumbing? Both. Okay, good. Um, there's, you know, a track listing for the DJs uh, that give all the times and song lengths, like for radio DJs that were, were playing this on the air. Yeah, it's like a King Biscuit Flower Hour looking yeah. type thing, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, it shows where the interview clips are. There, there are snippets of interviews. Uh, and the DJ breaks are all in there. And then there's an SST promo sheet. Um, so, yeah, on. man. Hold on. Let me grab it. Enjoy. So check this out, Ryan. This is just a, a quick piece from the that describes this release. The recording for Entertainment Radio was made at the Roxy Theater in L.A. on August 17, 1986. The pups prefer not to play the same place twice in a row, nor do they like to play two separate sets. So, 900 people packed into a 540-seat capacity house. A bunch of chairs and tables were removed to accommodate the audience. Firehose and Angst opened the show. Ooh. Yeah. What a great bill. Yeah. So, also included is some promo copy for DJs to read where listeners can win a, quote, top-of-the-line Akai compact disc player worth $475. Ooh, yes. How many bits? Uh, <laughs> What's the sampling rate on that? But then there's a letter uh, from Brian Long. This is pre-SST. Brian, of course, would go on to work directly for SST to work college radio. Um, so naturally, I pumped Brian for some info about how, how all this, you know, this Special Forces radio stuff worked. He told me my first gig out of college was in Studio City in L.A. with Spin Radio which syndicated shows to mostly non-commercial and a few alternative commercial radio stations free of charge. Ad money provided the financial support. A guy named Ed Raisin, or Rawson helped start Spin Magazine and became the executive editor. After a few years in New York City, he relocated to his home in L.A. No longer an executive editor, he did still produce the radio shows for Spin. Uh, probably the most famous of which Ryan is that Husker set recorded at First Ave in 1985. Yep, I've got the the Minutemen set too, man. Those are both good. Yeah. Uh, he goes on, after some time that relationship ended and he renamed his company Special Forces Radio. We recorded this show in August of 86 and check out what he says here. Firehose and Scratch Acid were also on the bill but not recorded. Oh, that's a miss. That's a miss. <laughs> yeah. My role was to assist with the recording, but primarily I edited the shows using a reel-to-reel and a razor blade. I got very good at splicing together audience sounds to create a quicker performance flow. We pressed them to vinyl, and I sent them to the stations and tracked which ones played the shows in order to report to the sponsors. This show kept me in touch with the SST team, which eventually paid off with a call to interview for a job. So there you go. 
so cool to learn about these semi bootlegs, I guess, like bootlegs in the sense that they were never intended for retail sale. Yeah. I wonder how many they pressed of these. Ooh, I feel like, like the King Biscuit Flower Hour ones, it feels like there's maybe, maybe in the hundreds. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's probably more than they would have pressed of these ones. Oh yeah. Well, they're just for promo to radio stations, right? Yeah. So thanks to Brian for cluing me in and thanks Brian for gifting me this killer record. Yeah, man. Hey, quick book report. Jerry A. Lang of Poison Idea released his memoirs this year in three separate volumes. They're called Blackheart Fades Blue, volumes one through three, on the always reliable Rare Bird books. Could have probably been one book. It would have been about 600 pages total between, you know, if you add up the three volumes. I have only finished volume one, and I can't wait to read the other two. For starters, I love Poison Idea, and of course their dysfunction as as a band and as people is legendary. If you've ever heard or read an interview with Jerry, you'll know he's a huge musicologist, not just, you know, of punk rock, but of all kinds of music. He talks about so many interesting bands, people, record stores, clubs, mainly from the Portland area. Mm. But during the time this volume is set, he also lived in San Francisco for a while. He lived in those vats at that old brewery, like that punk squat. Oh, like MDC. Yeah. Put together in the dicks and whatnot. Yeah. I can't remember. Was it MDC? I think it was MDC who kind of. TRI for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, His childhood was just totally fucked. He details all of it. Uh, Carducci gets a shout out for importing some of the first punk rock records into Portland. He talks a lot about the Wipers, Smegma, which he was, he played in, uh, his book, is his book is where I read the story about this murder that happened at the Starry Night Starry Nightclub in Portland that I asked Drew about last week. If you're into 80s punk and hardcore and especially if you're interested in the Portland scene or Poison Idea, for sure pick these up. Uh, like I said, I haven't read the next two, but I I hope to very soon. I I just have an insane backlog backlog of books. It's it's ridiculous. There's probably close to 2 dozen on my on my to read pile and there's more coming in the mail all the time but uh this the next two of these are going to go to the top of the pile this is insane man this is insane because i don't know how many spiels we do yeah where our spiels are like related or overlap um because mine's a book report too okay. so go ahead go ahead <laughs> and it's for the same reason i have okay. such a backlog <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, volume one of this goes right up to like the Kings of Punk era. So, you know, if you're looking for Poison Idea stuff, it goes into it. Real quick, Ryan, I've said before, I, I don't really want to always be talking about recently deceased musicians on the show. Mm, yeah. But there's been a few uh, lately that we should mention. You and I kind of texted about some of this, but uh, this is old news by this point. But Keith Levine passed away. We're both massive pill fans, especially the stuff Keith played on. I think it's safe to say his true legacy will be his influence. Always a bit of a disappointment for me that he he didn't do more with his his massive talent over the years, to be honest. Yeah. Huge influence on so many of the artists we've talked about on our show, though. Yeah, as a guitarist, hey? Yep. Just just so many sounds are owed to Keith, for sure. Yep. Another musician that was a huge influence on the SST generation of artists was Nick Turner of Hawkwind. Now, I won't claim to be a Hawkwind authority. I maybe own, you know, 10 Hawkwind albums, 
uh, and they tend to be from that 70s Lemmy era uh, of the band, but I recognize his impact outside of Hawkwind as well. Uh, I read a quote where he said something to the effect of, you know, he had an epiphany at some point pre-Hawkwind that what he wanted to do was play free jazz in a rock group. Lots of people were doing, like, had that epiphany, I guess, you know, yeah. in the in the 60s and 70s. Yep. Not necessarily an overt influence on SST artists, Ryan, but a super underrated guitarist, in my opinion, Wilco Johnson. Uh, primarily known as the guitarist during the classic era of Dr. Feelgood, but he had some great solo albums too. Mm-hmm. Pub rock had a huge influence on punk, on punk rock, and Dr. Feelgood were the kings of, of the pub, pub rock scene. One listened to Wilco's jagged and aggressive guitar style, and you can hear the through line to post-punk for sure. Yeah, me and my buddy Graham were just texting about Wilco, and uh, in particular that Wilco Daltrey, Roger Daltrey yep. record. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I love the Jippy Mayo era of the, of the Feel Goods too, but uh, there's no denying the power that the band had with Wilco on guitar. Just wanted to mention that stuff real quick. Yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned Hawkwind too. Uh, <laughs> I was, I'll, I'll get to my spiel in a sec here, but so I finally listened to, well, at least one, and I'm starting another of Jello's podcast, mm-hmm. Rene- Renegade Roundtable. Yeah. I, I listened to the one with Fred Armisen on it. Mm-hmm. And so Fred Armisen is on it and Jello and Fred know each other off and on through the years for various things. Jello was a guest on the Portlandia show one episode. Anyways, in true Jello fashion, though, like don't get me wrong, Jello asks Fred some questions and gives him a bit of time. Yeah. But it's mostly two hours of just Jello talking, and it's and the best part about it though, is to listen to Fred Armisen. His audio track is like kind of buried over Jello because Jello hardly lets him get a, a word in edgewise. But the best part is you can hear Fred. Uh, do it just in the background the whole time. It's like he's laughing and he can't believe he's talking to Jello Biafra about this stuff. And he just keeps going, wow, wow, <laughs> like that. But there's a part where Jello, you know, Jello has told his how influential Hawkwind was to him story mm. dozens of times, right? And then he, of course, talks about it as part of this podcast with Fred. <laughs> and, and Fred's trying to... Oh, which which Hawkwind record was that again? And Jello is he's already into two new stories right. and doesn't even answer Fred's question. <laughs> it's like and he's like, Oh, did, and you can hear Fred in the underneath Jello going like, Did you oh, did you like the Who? And then Jello's onto something totally different, and then all of a sudden Fred's like, Wow. <laughs> it's just it's hilarious. And it's totally, you know, I I think they uh they really like each other and it was a, it was a good one. I don't listen to many podcasts. I know I've said that before, but I had to, ch- I had to check that one out cause I'm a, I'm a Fred fan and a Jello fan. I'm halfway through the Mojo episode. Yep. So good. Oh yeah, man. Oh, I dude. can't wait for the documentary. Yeah, I know. I can't wait till that comes out. Okay. So like I said, I can't believe this. Uh, I have a book. Re- it's not so much a book report, I guess, as I, because we're doing, our end of year stuff actually during the end of the year. Yeah. I don't have to do that during my holiday break. Therefore, I'm going to try and read some books finally. Yeah, me too. Um, I just finished the Kid Congo Powers mm. book, Some New Kind of Kick. 
great. I haven't great read book. it yet, but yeah, yeah it's yeah, getting great good. Book. It's getting really good reviews. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and I've I've just started. I'm going to power read this too in the next couple of weeks. Greg Graffin's new book, Punk Paradox. Both of these are out on Hatchet, by the way, yeah. which is like fast becoming one of the best and most reliable punk rock publishers. I would say. Is this um, like? Are you doing the hol- the Mojack holiday gift guide? Is that what this is? A little bit. I'm actually going to ask you to help me pick which I should try and squeeze in before the end of the year out of this stack of 10 of my backlog that I haven't man- mentioned on the show yet. Before. Okay. Okay. Go. So here we go. Here we go. This one I really want to read. It's been staring at me for weeks, maybe even months now. We Are the Clash. This is a book about kind of the end era of the clash and i think kind of argues that it was still valid in the cut the crap era but it's written by or co-authored by mark anderson of dance of days uh, and of the dc scene you know mark is in um all of those documentaries and whatnot and he co-wrote dance of days so we've got kind of um i think i think um a really cool book about the punk ethos and even though you know that that Mach two version of the Clash um, de- definitely is much maligned, but someone making the case um, that maybe it shouldn't be. Mark Anderson and co-authored by Ralph Hybutsky, and this is out, out in 2018 on Akashic Books. I want to read that one. This one, Hallucinations from Hell: Confessions of an Angry Samoan, hmm. written by Greg Turner. Man, I want to read this one. 2021 this one's on rare bird yeah. as well Man, uh I yeah i want to read that one well i know you're an angry samoans fan but from what i read don't expect a lot of angry samoans in that book no i know it's not a a recount of the angry samoans i think it kind of touches on it um but i'm still interested to read it because yeah. what i've read in terms of the reviews i think will still hook me in pretty good yeah okay this one by david nolan i swear i was there Sex Pistols, Manchester, and the gig that changed the world. We have we have read and watched many a documentary about those very early Sex Pistols gigs that basically, you know, started a movement. Right. 2016, really want to read this one, though. It looks like an oral history of scenesters from back then. Bet you that's going to be good. This one I picked up. Very interested to uh, to read this one. I had a radio show for a second. You had a radio show for, like, what, a decade? Um, Well, not quite, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like a long time. This one, though, looks really, really cool. Um, This one is by Michael G. Plumides Jr. called Kill the Music, the chronicle of a college radio idealist's rock and roll rebellion in an era of intrusive morality and censorship. Ooh, that sounds good, right? This one's from 2008, and I just caught wind of it and picked it up. Kill the music. That looks good. Uh, This one, Any Night of the Week, a DIY history of Toronto music, 1957 to 2001. Mm. Uh, Johnny Dovercourt. This looks really good. And you know I love my Canadian content. This one, uh, and you'll appreciate this, it's funded by the Canadian Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the federal government too, Library and Archives Canada. So I mean, it's again when for people who don't live in Canada, this is like the BBC sponsoring a historic document of an important artistic event in your nation's history, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, but really looking forward 
to this. This one, I think I may have mentioned this one before. This one's called Death to Trad Rock. Have you ever mentioned that one? Maybe. It's subtitled Faster, Louder, Harder, Bass Aggro, High Treble Xerox Culture, Pop Noise, and Anti-Trad Rock Feeling Adventures in the 80s Post-Punk Underground, covering Big Flame, Bog Shed, The Wedding Present, Age of Chance, A Witness, The Membranes, Very Things, The Three Johns, The X, Stretch Heads, and more, written by John Robb on Cherry Red Books. Mm. Gosh, that's going to be good. This one, unofficial release by Thomas Bay William Bailey. And this is subtitled, Self-Released and Handmade Audio in a Post-Industrial Society. Mm. I feel like this is going to be part technical, part political. I really don't know. It just like the subtitle itself is like, I got to read that. 2012, this one's been out for a while on Belsona Books, but man, it looks so cool. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, here's some more Canadian content for you. I just got this one in the mail. I didn't know it existed. Um, the Legendary Horseshoe Tavern oh, yeah. book. Yeah. Um, a Complete History. This is a, a legendary uh, venue in Toronto. I'm sure that there's going to be overlap with that uh, other book that I just mentioned. But uh, this one's by David McPherson. Forward by Jim Cuddy from? Blue Rodeo. Blue Rodeo, exactly. Uh, another Canadian legendary band. This one's from 2017. Similarly sponsored by all of those uh, Canadian Provincial and Federal Arts Councils. Second last, this one. This one, I picked this one up on Earth Island Books um, about the same time that I got We Can Be the New Wind. So that's how long this has been sitting on my shelf. This one is called Directions to the Outskirts of Town. Punk Rock Tour Diaries from the 90s North America. This is by Welly Artcore. And it just covers a bunch of gigs, a bunch of scenes, a bunch of bands. It's basically like a road journal with, with uh, photos. And it's kind of like the era when for a minute I was in a touring band. And so when I just flip through the pictures, it's like, oh my God, I had that t-shirt. Yeah. Oh, I had that guitar strap, you know, like it just looks so cool. Um, and then finally, number 10, uh, another Clash one, Move Up Starsky. This is the extensive book on the making of the first Clash album by Tim Satchwell. Tim has been on this amazing tear for five, six years now, putting out like a two and a half inch thick book on each of the clash albums he's also this year i haven't picked these up yet i think they're co-authored with aunt davy one book it's a clash book about clash books <laughs> and then a second book it's a clash book about clash magazine articles they're both like two and a half inches thick i haven't got those but move up starsky so i've got these 10 books that i have to pick from over the holidays after I finished the Greg Graffin book, where would you go? The answer is replacements. <laughs> ah. Oh, that kind of made my 2022. <laughs> I, honestly, you didn't mention one that I thought you would. What's that one? Uh, Brian Johnson's book, The Lives of Brian. Oh, from ACDC? Yeah. Oh, no, I, I didn't know about that one. Yeah. Oh, dude, I bet you that's good. I'm sitting on my shelf. I think it's next in my queue. Oh my God. You know who would love that is my dad. Yeah. Actually. I'll, dude, I better get that. Yeah. Good, good tip. Yeah. This did become a Mojack 
What were you calling it? The Mojack Holiday Gift Guide. Yeah, this is the Mojack <laughs> Holiday Gift Guide because now I've got an ACDC book to buy for my dad. Yeah. After I read it. Um, all right, man. Well, hey, looking very forward to uh, getting into some lists the next two weeks and yeah. the last two episodes of the year, man. But next, let's get into some wild string quartet stuff. History lesson, part one. Hey, so at the outset of the show, I said, um, I can't remember how I worded that quote. Um, the modern composer refuses to die. Do you know where that's from? Where? Or I actually, I think it's the present day composer refuses to die. So that is a quote, I believe, attributed to Edgar Vares, mm. who, of course, was a huge inspiration for Frank Zappa. And I'm pretty sure Frank is sometimes mistakenly attributed with that quote. And he's had it on several of his albums. And I think even a version of Freak Out, if I'm not mistaken. I know Freak Out has got that little word balloon about Susie Cream Cheese. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure there is this Edgar Vares quote. But the present day composer refuses to die. And case in point is Elliot Sharp and David Soldier. Yeah. Um, like, wow, what a record. We definitely have had Elliot on the show um, in various formations a few times. Most notably, of course, we had Elliot on himself as a guest on episodes 128 and 29. First with Island of the Yahoos and then second with Tessellation Row, which is definitely related to the release we're covering on this episode. 194 with the Elliot Sharp release Larynx with Charles K. Noyes. Excellent, excellent interview there. And then episode 208, we had Elliot Sharp and Carbon with uh, the Monster Curve record where we had Bobby Previtt on the show. So we've had some great Elliot releases on, and this one is no different. Yeah, for sure, man. So as Elliot confirmed for me, this release is essentially the CD version of Tessellation Row, mm -hmm. which was LP and cassette only, which he mentions uh, was remastered for the CD release, these tracks. It does sound different. Yeah. I, I A-beat it, and it actually sounds more different, this remaster, than the... Canalette and Dino hmm. remaster to mm -hmm. me. Uh, it adds on two takes of the piece Hammer Anvil Stirrup, a, a piece that was commissioned by the Pori Festival in Finland in 1987 for the Avanti Quartet, but was recorded in the studio in New York for this album by uh, the Soldier String Quartet. Seven songs, one hour, 14 minutes long, this release, CD only. We've seen E Sharp perform with the Soldier String Quartet as Carbon, on the mm -hmm. Larynx release, as you mentioned. Uh, here he's the composer, conductor, and producer. He doesn't perform. I'd say we pretty thoroughly covered off Tessellation Row on episode 129, uh, which, but that was, you know, almost exactly 100 episodes ago, so I'll, I'll refresh everyone's memory. Uh, three separate pieces, basically. The, the track Tessellation Row came about because David Soldier asked Elliot to compose a piece for this new group that he had formed called the Soldier String Quartet, which featured Ron Lawrence on viola, Mary Wooten on cello, uh, Laura Seaton, and David Soldier on violins. Uh, he also, around this time, Elliot was uh, commissioned by Paul Dunkel of the American Composers Orchestra to write a piece, and that piece became Reiterations. Both were composed using the Fibonacci series to generate tunings and rhythms. Although Reiterations was performed live uh, a few times uh, with a string orchestra of 14 violins, four violas, four cellos, two contrabasses, 
some per- and percussionists built uh, Bobby Privet and Charles K. Noyes, along with Elliot on his double neck guitar bass. Um, when he recorded it in the studio, he just brought in the Soldier String, String Quartet, along with uh, bassist Ratso B. Harris. Uh, the two percussionists and himself recorded the tracks, but he ended up scrubbing them because it was just, it didn't work in the studio. Yeah, Ratso B. Harris has got to be one of the best names. It's right up there with Mako Sharkey oh, for big me. Time. Big time. Right? Yeah. yeah. At this same session, as he did reiterations, he did the three pieces Digital, Diurnal, and Ring Toss. Digital is a is a rhythmic piece performed by the quartet. Uh, their respective instruments were prepared with uh, flat strips of, of spring steel woven through the strings near the bridge. And all of these tessellation row tracks were recorded by Martin B.C. at his B.C. studio in the fall of 86. So that leaves us with the title track. And now I'm going to go over to Elliot's book, Irrational Music, to just read you a short piece about the the title track. The simple scoring construction set I'd made on my Atari 1040 ST and used to create the score of Larynx was used as well for Hammer Anvil Stirrup, an algorithmic piece commissioned by the 1988 Ultra Music meeting in Pori, Finland for the Avanti String Quartet. This work is based on a single core rhythm used as an ostinato, as well as on sets of pitches that may be used by players explicitly as foreground, as background for a variety of operations, and as source material for improvising. Each section has a simple, iconic instruction, such as drone, groove, or canon. And you can kind of hear those when you when you listen to the pieces. Yep. Sometimes layered with improvised pop-outs. In certain sections, the ostinato can be transformed by adding notes to create phasing effects. The instruction shuffle appears in one section, not for playing the blues, but to allow the players to bring in any and all previous elements of the score. I illustrated each of the operations with a graphic depiction. So that, you know, is a, I would say a more accurate of hammer anvil stirrup and how it's structured than I could probably come up with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I know when you read that, I'm looking at my notes for when we get to history lesson two and I'm like, Oh dude. Yeah. I didn't even try and write notes for it, but, uh, so that takes me to our interview this week and that's with Dave soldier. We go pretty deep into his career in music in the interview. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of just bat clean up on that afterwards He's just another one of these super fascinating people we've had the privilege to talk to on yeah, our show. Yeah, wow. Wow, hey. Just an insane body of work. Uh, as you'll hear, we don't get too much into the into this release. Um, his career is just so vast. Like I had a, a you know, a million questions for him. Should we kick it over to Dave though? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Dave Soldier. Dave, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate you asking. Okay, so I want to go back to your childhood. Where did you grow up and where did you go to school? Oh, uh, well, I mostly grew up in Carbondale, Illinois, in southern Illinois. Uh, before that, my family lived in in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm. And where did I go to school? You mean like grade school? Yeah, like high school. High school was in Carbondale. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I finished in Storrs, Connecticut. My my father passed when I was 13. Mm. My mom married a, a fellow that lived up in Connecticut, okay. so I finished school up there. And was it guitar first or violin first? First, uh, started playing piano when I was a kid in Minnesota. And then a uh, 
strings teacher came through in Carbondale and uh, in fourth grade they said who wants to play string instrument and I thought that meant guitar so I went and uh, chagrined to find out it meant violin and I thought if I carried a violin I'd get beat up too much so they told me viola was bigger so I studied the viola in fourth okay. grade all right but also guitar that early or yeah, later yeah. on? Yeah, as soon as I was, you know, 11 or something, you know, I could find my way to find a guitar. I started playing that too. Mm -hmm. And what were you into? Like, what was what was the music that made you want to play? You know, get into playing music at all? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Probably it's for every musician. So a lot of musicians came from musical families. I, I really didn't. My mom played a little bit of piano and my father played a little bit of harmonica. But, uh, you know, like, kind of, oh, Susanna, and stuff like that, right. you know. You know, what What really get, my, my dad was a big uh, listener to music, mm -hmm. and he would play reel-to-reel -reel tapes when me, me, my brother and me would go to bed. So I grew up hearing music, and the first music that I can remember that really, really moved me was George Gershwin. Mm. Which I still love, so I think that was that was important. So I fell in love with that, and then growing up in Carbondale, I would listen a lot. I mean, all the kids listened to rock music, but I also listened. I loved listening to. It's it's Southern Illinois, so it's very close to. It's about ninety miles south of St. Louis, and so and very close to Kentucky and even to Tennessee. So there would be all these uh, shows coming through. Uh, R&B shows, people like Muddy Waters used to play in Carbondale. Oh, wow. So I'd hear R&B and blues, and I'd hear a lot of country western from the acts that were coming in from Nashville. And so while everybody else was listening to Deep Purple and I guess Led Zeppelin and so on, I, I was listening to all that, but I was also listening a lot to country western and... Uh, and blues, mm -hmm. and uh, of course I continued to do that. So that kind of got me into music. But the stuff that really made me decide to become a musician, I would say first was uh, my cousin. It was my cousin Bob gave me a record by Bill Monroe. Yep. And that just uh, it was called Bluegrass Instrumentals, and the first song on it, Stony Lonesome. That was just. Uh, I listened to it over and over and over and over. It was just so, so powerful. And then my friend Bill and me would go out to buy 78s because we both love blues. And back then you could go to places and buy 78 records because nobody listened to them anymore. It'd be like buying CDs now. You could buy them for a quarter. So we bought all these records by Holland Wolf and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry and count Basie and all that stuff and we just play them over and over again and so I was playing this kind of music and the thing that made me want to be a composer I know exactly what it was it was uh, listening to Eddie Palmieri I heard Eddie Palmieri on the radio and it was a song called Puerto Rico and that that song I'll just like Bill Monroe when I was 13 this was when I was 15 and I just said, oh, this guy is not, all the music I knew, you bring in a song, 
and the bass player figures out a part, piano player figures out a part, you know, guitar player figures out a part, etc. That's how most of the records I grew up with, and I dare say you grew up with, are, are made. But I heard the Paul Murray thing, and I said, oh my God, this is somebody's writing out every part. You couldn't possibly ever improvise this. And that was a big, that was a big, that's, that record made me want to be a composer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of that early bluegrass stuff, the speed still today that those guys played at is just mind-blowing. That's true, but that's not what really struck me. What struck me about it, um, I don't, I did play bluegrass. I wouldn't say I was ever a great bluegrass player, but I did play it and I, you know, did some touring with it and so on, played in the deep south. But um, the stuff that I liked wasn't the show-offy stuff. It was, it was literally, it would be mostly Bill Monroe, and, and which is not show-offy, or typically it's not. And uh, it's more like the blues, and and maybe the Stanley Brothers. Um, ne- neither of them were showoffy. It's more about the soul, and still is. If I if I listen to, you know, there's a lot of bluegrass I like, and there's some of these newgrass people, and I adored John Hartford. I thought he was fantastically talented, and Vassar Clements, who was major major inspiration for me and for many violin players, but. Um, I, I never liked I never liked that stuff where they just start going, you know, they they just play loud and fast as possible. That never made much sense to me. Just like it, it leaves me a little cold also in, in rock music. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how did you get involved with Roscoe Mitchell and Bo Diddley? Well, they're two different stories. So I, I went to Michigan State. Uh, so I went to college. I was seventeen, and uh, I bought a. A Roscoe Mitchell, uh, Mitchell record mostly because I was just inter- I was being a DJ at the radio station on, at Michigan State and I just wanted to explore different kinds of music so I brought I bought a record of his called Conglipidus I think it was called the Roscoe Mitchell Art Ensemble which later became the Art Ensemble of Chicago also I just was very struck by its uh, by its how brave it was and how independent and then I found out that Roscoe was living on a farm outside of East Lansing, Michigan. So uh, I didn't have any money. And I asked Roscoe if I could take some lessons from him. He said, what? You don't play saxophone. And I said, well, I'd like composing lessons because I like your composition. And, and so he said, okay. And so I would hitchhike out there. <laughs> and I didn't have any money. So um, he lived on a farm, like I said. And so I would trim his fruit trees. I mean, his lessons at the time were only $14 a lesson, but I just didn't have it, you know. And uh, and so I took lessons with him for a few months. At, at some point, like the next year, I kind of had to stop because he was touring so much with the art ensemble that I, I, he was constantly on tour. So, um, you know, I stayed in touch with him, but I, I didn't. So I'd say probably had six or eight months of lessons with him. And um, he was the first person... I'd met who um, really, really, really practiced. So, you know, if I had grown up where I live now in New York, I'd know a ton of people that practice all the time. Mm-hmm. But small town Midwest and so on, you know, you, you didn't you didn't practice that much. 
and to find somebody who was practicing three hours a day every day that was you know the way that he he went after becoming a good musician that was very impressive to me and you asked about Bo Diddley that's yeah. a totally different thing then I was living in Gainesville Florida I was playing in all different kinds of bands I was playing in the University Orchestra and I was playing in country bands again and rock bands and and I was playing in R&B bands so I was playing actually I think that what happened so I was playing in a group that was run by Jimi Hendrix's cousin whose name was Reggie Hendrix so Re Reggie's passed since since then okay and uh, he played uh, saxophone so uh, the Hendrixes lived both in Seattle and in Gainesville in fact they from what I understand they all lived in northern Florida and then some of them moved to Seattle so uh, Reggie was playing music that would be kind of like Herbie Hancock electric you know stuff like watermelon man and things like that and we we play in these bars and you might play watermelon man for like half an hour you know because people were dancing right so um, in the south when you play that kind of music people dance right it's a dance music I mean yeah you listen but most you know it's a dance music so people were dancing you just keep going going and going you know um, so I was playing in that in that band and uh, I was playing guitar and also I played violin too in that I, I was playing both instruments in the band and so when Bo Diddley needed a guitar player I was kind of the obvious guy to call yeah so he called me and I, did, I played with him a little bit and then he asked me which is very nice because he was a very very creative intelligent and kind person uh, very very impressive person he built all those guitar player guitars himself from scratch and uh, just a good person but um, he asked me if I would go on real tours with him where like sort of like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley did the same thing. They didn't carry the bands with them. Right, yeah. Go and get pickup players. Pick players, players. yeah. But uh, Bo said he wanted somebody to travel with him to teach, so to teach the band and have a rehearsal before he came. Oh, yeah. So he asked me if I'd do that, sort of like being a music director. Right, yeah. And I told him, I told him I was going to move to New York. And then I told him I couldn't make a living paying what he was paying, uh, which was true. They were both true. Yeah. And he said, you're crazy. David, you're moving to New York. You're nuts. It's terrible up there. But, you know, so Bo Diddley never wanted to live in New York. He, he, liked, living, he liked living on his farm, essentially, yeah. in Florida. Uh, but just a tremendous person. I have absolute tremendous respect for him. And here's something that you would appreciate that most people will have no idea what I'm talking about. But Bo Diddley grew up in Chicago, and his classmate and his good friend was Leroy Jenkins, the jazz violin player. Yep. When I got to New York, so I looked up Leroy because he and I had the same violin teacher, a guy named Elwyn Adams, who was living in, in Gainesville. So Elwyn said, well, you know, I used to teach Leroy 20 years before or whatever. Um, look him up. So I did. And I said, oh, I just was playing with Bo Diddley. And he said, Bo, such a disappointment. 
he could have been so good. And then, and then Bo Diddley came to the bottom line. And I went backstage and I said, Bo, I just saw Leroy Jenkins. He said, Leroy, is he still alive? So I got the two of them back together. And then I was, you know, this is now we're moving into the a, a, a couple years later. And I was playing with Maureen Tucker from the Velvet Underground. Yep. And, and, and Mo, they call her Mo, Mo said, the reason she got into music was because of Bo Diddley and uh, the African drummer lived in New York named Ola Tunji. She told me that these were the two things that made her want to be a, a musician, and, and, and especially a drummer. So I, it's, this took me months, and I called up all three and I said, if I could produce a record with the three of you, would you do it? Because I think this will be the greatest rock and roll record ever made. Yeah. Bo Diddley, Leroy Jenkins together again with Mo Tucker on the drums. I said, this is going to be the, you know, I didn't say primitive to them, but yep. it would have that, but it would also have the sophistication. It would have, and it would have the incredible knowledge that these people have, and they all play their instrument their own way. Right, yeah. And they all know the tradition from the bottom up, you know? So uh, they all agreed to do it, but Bo said, and Leroy agreed, well, if you do it, we got to have $10,000 down. And I said, okay, I'm going to ask all the rich people I know and find somebody who will give us 10000 bucks to make the record. And I just could not do wow. it. Wow. <laughs> couldn't do it. And then Bo died, and then Leroy died. And, you know, so I really, if there's one record I can think of that I really, really, really wish I'd been able to put together, it would have been that. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. <laughs> At least they all agreed to do it. Yeah, yeah. And, and Leroy and Bo got back in touch, so that, that was nice. That, there's a win. That's yep. something nice for, for the world. Yeah. Okay, so when you move to New York, how quickly do you fall in with that, I'm assuming, with that kind of downtown 80s avant-garde crowd? Right away, right yeah. away. I mean, it was so available. You know, any anybody who was willing to do it could do it. That, that was a period when, you know, people were making music with anything and purposely playing instruments they didn't know how to play so yeah i felt i felt immediately right into it so i was doing the more standard stuff you know classical jazz rock and, and so on um some a little bit of salsa you know but the downtown experimental thing like look the day i moved to new york on the subway I met uh, the drummer from um, the Cecil Taylor group. And then, and then um, within a week, I had a gig. This is crazy. Within a gig, I had a gig outdoors in Lincoln Center the week I came. And, and, uh, we, did, and we, got, we did a bunch of music by Leroy Jenkins. I got his written music, and I put together a band. Marty Ehrlich was in it, Sean Clark. And we just, we just did it, you know. Boom, just like that. And uh, the first day I moved to New York, also, I visited a friend of mine named Trish Burgess. She's a sax player. And she was working at a jingle house, you know, where they make advertising. Right. It was a guy named Charlie Morrow. He's still, still around, kind of a wacky experimental musician, but he made jingles at the time. And I, I, told, I walked by, and I, 
walked to her place on East, no, West 77th, I believe. And I said, oh, I heard this good uh, trumpet player uh, just practicing. I said, New York's amazing. I just heard this great trumpet player with this window open. She said, yeah, that's Miles Davis's house. He was just practicing. Wow. <laughs> so that was all on the first day. And then there was a music critic uh, who's still around. His name's uh, Tim Page. And I overlapped with him in high school. And I called him and said, I just moved to New York. And he said, oh, well, there's a concert tonight at a place, at a at a uh, art gallery on West Spring Street. So come with me to that. And uh, it was called, I think it was called the Speed Trials. Yep. Sonic and Youth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the first night I was there, I, uh, I heard the Ordinaires, which was a band I ended up playing with, you know, a few months later. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of other people that were there that I didn't know that I, you know, some of them like Jonathan Kane from the, uh, who's co-started the Swans, like Jonathan's my oldest friend in New York. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and, uh, so, but I just, I didn't actually meet him that night, but it turns out I heard him that night. So, yeah, that, that was a much, that was a very easy scene to break into if you could play anything. And if you were willing to play for zero money. Right. Yeah. Anybody could do it. And, and lots of people did. Yeah. Tell me about getting the Soldier String Quartet together. How did that happen? I'm assuming those, you know, uh, Ron, Laura... And Mary were all people that you just met. Um, Boy, you've done your homework. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm assuming they were all people that you met, um, you know, just as part of that scene. Not really. So what what happened was, um, you, you must know who Giorgio Gamelski is, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, mostly from his connection to the Stones. The Rolling Stones. Yep. And he started the Yardbirds and produced their records. And then in 79... He moved to New York, and he did a lot of other experimental music. He put together the band material and a lot of other stuff. So by the time I met him, which was about 81 or 82, you know, I just met Giorgio because he was DJing in um, a club called Tramps. And I said, my God, what a great DJ. He's only playing stuff I've never heard. And like I said, I've been a college DJ. And um, he was playing a lot of African music, and I thought I knew all the African music that was released in the, America. But everything he played, I'd never heard before. So I went up and introduced myself, and I said, man, you're about the best DJ I've ever heard in my life. And uh, I became his friend, and he would invite me over to his place on 24th Street. He had a whole townhouse where they had rehearsals and stuff. Um, and honestly, I knew him for months before I realized he was the original manager for the Rolling Stones and the Yardbirds and blah, blah, blah. He's, he's done a tremendous amount of stuff. Um, I only found out, well, I could tell you how I found out, but he never told me. And, and Giorgio was a funny guy. I mean, he, he, he only passed a few years ago. And one of my closest friends. And, and sort of, it's, we both realized it was a, he was like a bad father figure for me. And we, we both acknowledged that. Yeah. And, uh, but a wonderful man. I loved him and still love him deeply. So around, I'm going to say, 83. So after after Bill Laswell and the other people from Material quit, Giorgio, like all the bands quit, 
he wanted me to put together his new band. And so he said, David, I got a, I got every Monday night at the Bitter End, which is a club on, in, on uh, Bleecker Street, still exists. I got every night on the Bitter End, and uh, we're going to put a band together. We're going to get a guest for every week, and you've got to arrange the music and leave the band and do their stuff. So we got, you, you, you would probably know some of the people, but like the, I, I forgot his name right now, but the, the leader of the MC5. Uh, Wayne Kramer? Wayne. We got Wayne in. We got a bunch, a lot of jazz musicians in, like Frank Wright. Um, a lot of people from the Sun Ra group. Mm-hmm. Um, and a bunch of downtowners, Billy Bang, you know. And each time they, they would give me, I'd meet them once. They'd give me a couple of their LPs because it was still LP area, era. And I would choose two or three tunes, write them out for the band. We'd have one rehearsal that afternoon, no, Sunday afternoon, and then Monday night we play the gig. So we did that, and we'd have guest uh, acts, and it, it actually gets deeper than that. There was some pretty cool stuff about that. And I had very good people in the band. I had Roy Campbell playing trumpet, uh, who was one of my favorite, trump- everybody's favorite trumpet player, if they knew Roy. We had uh, Richard Dworkin, Dickie Dworkin, from the Microscopic Septet, who was a phenomenal drummer. We had Jeff Blythe, who ran the uh, he started, co-started Dexy's Midnight Runners, but then when I knew him, he was leading the uh, Elvis Costello horn section. Also very, you know, he's some very good players. But I, I, every night I would come home depressed because I'd write all these arrangements out and we'd practice them. And then once they were in front of an audience, it would ju- just all go to hell. <laughs> you know, everybody would go crazy, you know, and go over the top and, and go to hell in a good way by the sounds of things. Well, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> just everybody playing too much. Right. Yeah. You know? And I said, damn it, I'm going to put a band together where I write down every single note hmm. that way people can't overplay. Cause I was just too tired of over overplaying. And also some of the stuff I wanted to do, like for instance, versions of old Delta blues like Robert Johnson, uh, Skip James, people like that, just couldn't be done, can't be done by improvisers. Can't, can't be. Or they'd have to be very unusual people that really knew that tradition so well they could actually play it. So, so again, I have to write everything out. So I said, well, what kind of group could I do with that? Well, I was thinking I could do a guitar quartet, like electric guitars. I guess sort of like what years later the Helicasters were, mm-hmm. you know, you just write out everything, you know, for the, and, or I could do strings. And the thing is, if I use guitar players, guitar players cannot read. Right. So you're not going to learn quickly. So, okay, let's, let's do strings. And that's why I put the string, that's honestly why I put the string quartet together. It was born out of musical frustration. At being a composer, I was in my early 20s, and I, I just, you know, there was no way that orchestras were going to play my pieces. And even now, being in my 60s, I, the orchestras don't play my pieces, or it's very rare. So, you know, I just couldn't figure out a way to get into that world. And even if I did, they're classical players, so they're going to mess it up. They're not going to understand the phrasing. So let me put together my own band, and we're going to practice and put all this stuff together and make it sound right the way it's, it should sound. So that that was the reason to put together the quartet. You're a composer, like 
<laughs> just <laughs> in a scene bi- made up of improvisers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then the players from the quartet, not the bass and drummer, I got Ratso Harris, who's a top jazz bass player, and Michael Sikorsky, who was Lou Reed's drummer, and also in the Everyman Band. So those, they, but the the other three players were all classical players, mm-hmm. but with an interest in pop music and other kinds of music. I mean, they didn't mind doing avant-garde stuff. Right. Even if they, you know, they were Juilliard people or whatever. And uh, that is more common now. It's still not that common. But you have people like the Public Quartet and, and Curtis Stewart and people that come out of Juilliard and whatever, and and they will play um, weirdo, wacky music. Yep. Um, still not enough of them, but they're there. At, at the time we were doing it, hardly anybody really okay so when you played your own shows like as the soldier string quartet um you know like did you play at places like cbgb's and like who who would you have been playing with other avant-garde bands or like punk rock bands uh well all of them so um yeah we did a lot of stuff with the downtown scene we made a whole bunch of records with elliot sharp uh we did oh i mean so many of the Fred Frith, you know, I try to remember the people who were downtown experimental people. We we worked with most of them. John and Zorn then, a lot, I bet. No, we yeah. only um, Zorn gave us his first string quartet, but we never played or recorded it. Hmm. But uh, you know, who else is downtown? I can't remember. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of who we've had on our show. Well, we've had uh, Ned Rothenberg on our show. Yeah, we did stuff with Ned, yeah, but not Ned's Sam. compositions, yeah. but we do concerts with Ned, or Ned would play with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, Butch Morris, Zena Parkins, uh, Tom Cora, you know, those are all names of people that played the, you know, the Knitting Factory scene mm-hmm. a lot. Yep. Um, and then we worked with a lot of jazz people, uh, and we worked with a lot of uh, more kind of avant-garde classical people, and even some... Occasionally, some more straight-ahead classical people, but not so much with the straight. Uh, of all the players, I was the one that had the weakest uh, classical chops. Oh, and then we made a record with Tony Williams and, and uh, Jonas Helborg with Bill Laswell. Uh, got, you know, uh, Phil Niblock, you know, for an experimental guy. I think I think I counted something like 100 records that we made. Wow. Yeah, something like that. That's insane. Okay, yeah. well, you mentioned Elliot, and you're a composer, so explain, if you can, performing to the Fibonacci series. Because that's your actual interest, right? Is that is that record from well, the... Well, I'm interested in all of it, but that's kind of the, the... I guess that's the tie-in, I suppose. Well, Elliot's compositions were usually just one sheet, and, and it will be some instructions. So, to the best I can remember, his stuff about the Fibonacci series, I mean... Uh, was literally just play something once, play it three times, play it five times, play it, you know, whatever the Fibonacci, you can figure it out. Right. Once, twice, three, five, eight, whatever the hell it ends up being. Um, So I think that was about it for the Fibonacci series. I wrote a piece based on the Fibonacci series, uh, which I think extends it a bit. Um, It's on... It's in my opera. It's called Sing of Nature. But for the Fibonacci series, per se, I think that's all I can re- re- remember that uh, that he did. It was 
I don't know. There's, there, there's. A, I'm sure if people re- really want to go into golden ratio and Fibonacci series, it can go a lot further. Right, and you're open tuning the instruments for like tessellation row and. You really do your homework. Yeah, um, I believe we retuned the instruments for that piece. Yeah, I mean this is this is in string instruments. Right. This goes back hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever heard uh, Heinrich Bieber? No. B E R. No. Check out that stuff. That that was all. Um, most, um, the best known stuff is solo, and each one of his his uh, etudes was uh, retuned to different tuning. Hmm. So this uh, it's not just Joni Mitchell up in Canada. It's uh, um, I love Joni Mitchell in Canada, but <laughs> you know she's not the only one that does uh, retuning. It's it's been around for hundreds of years. Okay, do you recall the performance of Tessellation Row at Columbia University? I believe you met uh, Teo Marcero at, at that show. No, I didn't meet him there. I met him before. Oh. Uh, I, I asked Teo to be part of that show. I, I certainly remember that, that concert. Hmm. So, um, yeah, so I was a you know, graduate student at Columbia, and uh, I started being part of what they called the Columbia Composers something. And you could write little things and get them performed. And I said, look, guys, give me my own show because I'm the one that's really doing lots of concerts in the city. Just give our string quartet, you know, a night at the what's now the Miller Theater. At the time, it was called the Macmillan Theater. And also, I was very close to the guy that started the theater, Otto Luning. Otto was my coach and, and musical coach. He's also one of the inventors of the synthesizer, oh. and and invented uh, the, and that synthesizer is still here. It was built in 1957, hmm. but he and Vladimir Milton Babbitt, and, R- and the RCA engineers put together the first musical synthesizer. Wow! It's a wall, and uh, he he had started that theater, so I kind of guilt tripped them into doing it and said, "Come on, guys, just." Let, my quartet's doing all this new music by all these different people. Give us a night there. So I went to Teo, who is, as you know, is, is uh, I'd done some film score stuff with him. And uh, said, Teo, do you have any string quartets? And he said, yeah, I have a couple. And they haven't been played. So I said, okay, we'll premiere them. And then I went to Elliot, who I just knew from the scene. I, I might have done one or two gigs with him before, but... I, I just knew him from the, the scene and said, Elliot, you're not doing, you know, one of the things I want to do with the string quartet is get people who wouldn't write string quartets, you know, because at the time he was, it was all electric guitars, you know, yeah. the stuff he was doing and, and let them try writing string quartet, you know, and he said, okay, I'll do that. So he, he wrote that. And then, um, so I had tail, then I brought in, uh, John Catler, who's work at, John ended up working in the Lamont Young Forever Blues Band, uh, Forever Bad Blues Band, along with my friend Jonathan, I was mentioning. He had a 32-note per octave guitar and said, why don't you do something? And then a fellow named Gary, whose last name I can't remember, Gary was Alan Lomax's assistant and was a friend. He was also a student at Columbia. So we got the night at Miller. Only two of the Columbia composers showed up, Noel Cross and Ed Campion. Uh, Ed later won the Rome Prize, and he has a he has quite a career. But most of the people, they just if it wasn't 
academic, meaning at that time, you know, what they called serial music. Mm -hmm. um, they just didn't care. Yeah. But still, we ended up having a good audience. And uh, yeah, that, that was, that, that was a, a lot of fun. Yeah, I don't know what to say about it. We did a bunch of stuff with uh, Elliot, and we did a bunch of stuff with Teo. But no, I mean, I, I knew Teo a bit from doing other recordings with him beforehand. Okay. Uh, getting pretty specific here, and I know we're going back a ways, but this, um, these tracks that you recorded with Elliot, Hammer, Anvil, Stirrup, Mm -hmm. I have them recorded at Baby Monster Studio, New York City, and I've never, yeah. he I've never heard that studio name before. Um, Steve McAllister engineered it. Do you, do you recall that at all? You know, this is a little crazy, but I'm not sure that some of it also wasn't done at uh, this old friend of mine, but I'm spacing out his name, a guy that used to be in Material and then started his own place out in Brooklyn. Are you talking about Martin Bisi? Martin, yes. I think some of it might have also been done with Martin, possibly. Yeah. And uh, Baby Monster, I think, was in the East Village. Yeah, I, I can't quite remember, Steve. I do, however, remember that each piece went by uh, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Very, very quickly. I mean, I, we might have spent four hours on the whole record. Okay, um, you later toured with John Cale. How did that come about? So we had a record we called Sojourner Truth. It was out on a small label in, in New England called Newport Classic. And that later got bought up by, by Sony. So when the other kids in high school, like all the, the weird kids, this is probably unchanged, were into the Velvet Underground. And so I did like the Velvet Underground. And I, I really like Lou Reed's Rec follow-up record called Berlin. Mm -hmm. That was one of my favorite records when I was like 15. Right. But I wanted it partly because it was such a Lou Reed-centric thing, and it's funny because I, I told you I just on Thursday we just with with Laurie Anderson, who's obviously his his wife, mm -hmm. we just did the uh, Lou Reed's 80th birthday concert. Right. But but I also wanted to be a little contrary. And say no. My favorite Velvet is John Cale. Well, later my favorite Velvet became Mo Tucker. But, but John. But I really always loved John's music, and uh, I loved that record, Paris 1919. Yeah, it's great. And I listened to it in high school. And whenever I tour with Cale, and I'd say I listened to you in high school, he'd say, "Shut up! You're making me feel old. Shut up!" <laughs> so, but I love John's singing and his songwriting and so on. So I was a big John Cale fan. Yeah. So for that record, I took the song Paris 1919 and arranged it. And uh, I got Shelley Hirsch, who you would probably know, to sing it. Mm -hmm. If you could play a song, I'd say play our version of Paris 1919 with Shelley. And uh, so Cale heard it. And I know why he heard it. It's because we were also sometimes performing at this place called Art at St. Anne's. And they, they did a lot, of, they did the, all the Hal Wilner project, uh, productions and a lot of stuff. Yep. So I knew uh, Sue, uh, Susan Feldman and Janine Nichols who were running it because we would occasionally perform there. And uh, Sue especially was very close with uh, Lou and John. And she got them back together to do songs for Drella. Okay, yep. 
just did a song for song for Jala that Laurie Anderson sang mm-hmm. with the group just the other day. So I mean, um, it's funny how these things come back. No kidding. <laughs> so uh, Sue gave our record to John, and John called me, and typical John Kale fashion, he just says, uh, "What does he say?" God, it was the first. I got a recording. He doesn't say hi. This is John Kale. He just says. <laughs> I got a recording on Thursday. Can can your string quartet do it? And I go, who is this? You know, and all that. So, I, I I'd have to look up what re- recording we did with him. But uh, he called me up, and and I guess we edited off, and we started doing. You know, I worked with him for six years. Wow. Okay, and a fair amount of touring, and I think some movie soundtracks. A fair or... amount of touring, and eventually I had yeah, and I did movie sound so. You know, I wrote the movie soundtracks, which the ones I can think of immediately were Basquiat, which was, uh, oh dear, very famous, called Julian Schnabel's film. Mm-hmm. And then Mary Heron's film called um, I Shot Andy Warhol. And then we did two original famous Warhol films, Kiss and Eat. And, but we did a bunch of other ones too. But those are the ones that come immediately to mind. And um, in each of those, John would typically just play something on the synth. Give me the recording of the synth. And out of that, I'm supposed to come up with an arrangement. So, but, you know, that, that was, it's, you know, these things become, for if you go through them personally, they become part of your history. Mm-hmm. You know, and it becomes kind of, you, you start to treasure these things. Even though at the time, at, at, after working with them for six years, I just had to say, I'm a professor at Columbia University. I'm running a laboratory. I have 20 people, you know, I'm responsible for. Right. I'm sorry, John. I just, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I, I just can't afford to take the time, you know, go off for three weeks in Europe. I just can't do it. Yeah. You know, so I had to stop doing it. Okay. Uh, you've mentioned Mo Tucker and Jonathan Kane, mm-hmm. both of whom played with you in the group Kropotkins. That's right. Tell me a bit about that group. You, I know you do more homework than anybody I've ever met, Brandon. <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. You know, it's, <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, how'd that come about? Well, uh, Jonathan and I became friends in '84. Uh, it was for, I'd already mentioned Georgia Gomelsky. So he asked me to put another band together for his uh, 50th birthday. So he had introduced me to the music critic Robert Palmer. Mm-hmm. Yep. So Robert was a brilliant man, and he played clarinet. And uh, and he got Jonathan in the group. And uh, he, you know, Jonathan was in the Swans at the time, and, and started that group along with Michael Gira. And then I put together a big band, and we did a version. Like I was saying before, I, I always wanted to do these Delta Blues scored out. So I made an arrangement of if I have possession over Judgment Day for a large group. And that's what we did for Giorgio's birthday. And then we were going to put a, a repertoire band together, like kind of a big band does Delta stuff. I hadn't realized at the time that in a way, James Reese Europe had already done that 100 years before, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it's only when I heard those records and, the, and the, to a certain extent W.C. Handy kind of did that too but I didn't know that at the time so yeah Jonathan and I became friends there and we stayed friends 
And this is another, it was another artistic decision made out of desperation. Like you asked me why I started the string quartet. I, I started the Kropotkins for a similar reason. I've, I felt like even with the string quartet, by then we had these personnel changes and so on that made it pretty difficult. And for a few years, I had Regina Carter, who could play the hell out of the blues and so on. But, you know, she wasn't always available and all that. And I just felt like I can't make the music sound the right way. Why? Not because strings can't do it. It's because the players will not spend, you know, they look at themselves as freelancers. You're right. supposed to go in there and read everything as if it were Mozart. Well, you know, you learned Mozart your whole life. From your little kid, you learned how to make those little black and white notes sound like a musical phrase. Mm -hmm. But you haven't done that with this American music. You haven't done it. So you can't, unless you put time into it. And classical players are almost, now with more exceptions, like we were talking about, uh, they just simply would not put the time into it. They wouldn't even listen. I, I, I had this experience recently with a, a quartet in San Francisco very good conductor asked me for the charts and I, I told him you better have the quartet listen to the original recordings and they didn't and then it comes out sounding like Brahms you know it's just totally wrong whereas when my group did at least when we recorded we you know I would play the 78 and and or not the 78 I play the reissue CD and and say listen to that phrase try to phrase it like that and that's why we were able to get it to work so I just said I want to work with people that actually understand this this tradition and then so two listening things one was being on a tour with kale and we were i remember where we were we were in stuttgart and we were traveling with two large buses one for the band and the other one for its bosendorfer and and the sound system and just setting up everything at every club was hours you know to get everything together and i was walking around stuttgart waiting for the sound check and there was this Japanese bluegrass band playing Bill Monroe. I said, this is so great. You just pull out the instrument and you play. You know, they no PA system. Can I do that with this music I'd like to do? Then I was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting at the National Institute on Health. And, and I went to the, uh, I went to the uh, uh, Smithsonian. Now, if you go to the Smithsonian, this is before all the reissues of the Alan Lomax stuff. So, again, I'm bringing his name up. In some ways, I think Alan Lomax, who just played a little guitar, you know, he wasn't really a great player or singer or anything. But in some ways, he was, you know, the most influential person in my musical life, you know, discovering Muddy Waters, uh, Jelly Roll Morton, you know, the whole East Coast folk thing, you know, all that stuff, all the stuff that was Lomax, you know, mm -hmm. was out. And I did get to meet him, and you know, he's, he's an ornery guy. He was an ornery guy, but, you know, I liked him a great deal. Yeah. He was a Columbia professor, actually, for a mm -hmm. while, and he got fired. He oh. got fired. And the next day, he won the Presidential Medal of Honor. So, I mean, you know, academics. So, um, I went back there, and I had read his book called Where the Blues Began. I think that's what it's called. And he talked a lot about Othar Turner and Sid Hempel. And so I, uh, I said, well, you've got all the tapes here. Can I listen to the tapes by Sid Hempel and Othar Turner? And 
sure. And then I listened to it. And I said, wow, you can do this because they're doing it. They're using a bass drum and a snare because to me the drums are very important. So like New Orleans, one, one person on snare, one on bass drum. And then a flute and sometimes a banjo. A, a flute meaning a panpipe. Right. And not, not a panpipe. A, uh, this little flute. I'm not exactly sure what to call it. Um, uh, Othar called it a fife. So it's a little... It's a little. It's like a fife and drum, like you like see like a tin whistle or something almost. When you when you see all those paintings of like the Revolutionary War and you know yeah. people, it's it's like that. I mean, it's played all over the world. You know, they have fife and drum in Spain, for instance. Um, so, but and they had a banjo. I said, you can do that. So I need. So, I called up Jonathan and I said, I, I finally want to do this. Let's put it together. Called up the other players. Um. And then, uh, originally, I had the this wonderful singer Dina Emerson, who sang on among other things. I mean, she sang the lead in my opera called "The Naked Revolution," and she's on my record called "The Least Wanted Music." She's the opera singer who can do rap, you know, mm-hmm. about about cowboy songs and and advertising. So Dina's amazing, uh, but she didn't really. That wasn't her. She didn't understand the blues, so. I, I was walking around downtown New York, and up there was a poster saying Othar Turner is playing at the bank. And I thought it was kind of hallucinating, like, Othar's in New York City? <laughs> and so I went there, and he was, with his granddaughter, who's now probably about 30, and she's the one carrying on the tradition. Mm-hmm. So Othar was playing, and then there was this singer from Memphis called Lorette Velvet. Yep. And she just she just knocked me for a loop. I couldn't believe Lorette could do what she could do, you know, have her own voice in that music. At the time, I didn't know she'd been playing with Jessie Mae Hempel, who's, uh, I think, Sid Hempel's daughter or granddaughter. So she really did know that tradition, as well as playing with Tab Falco and the Panther Burns and playing with the leader from Big Star, whose name I just spaced out, uh, Chris. Oh, uh, Chris uh, Bell? Not uh, Chris Bell, but also the other guy, the singer with the black hair. Oh, uh, Alex Chilton. Alex Chilton. She'd yeah. been playing with Chilton and Tav Falco, and, you know, she had a lot of background. But she had her own sound, and the way she sings is exactly the way she talks. She's from a small town in Tennessee, and, you know, so I asked her if she would sing. And that's kind of how we put the the band together. I met Mo Tucker, you know, obviously through playing with John Kale, and I gave her our first record, which had a fellow named Sam Bennett, who then moved to Japan, uh, on the drums. And I said, uh, Mo, do you like this music? If you do, you know, I hope you can perform with us. And she called me back after she heard the record and said, Yeah, I really like this. I'd, I'd be happy to play with you guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, we only made one record with Mo, unfortunately. It's called uh, Five Points Crawl. And I think for all of us, it's kind of our... There's something about how Mo and Lorette sing together. And also how... So Jonathan plays in this very sophisticated style. And Mo actually is far more sophisticated than you may think. Mm-hmm. She knows how to play standard drums. She just decided that doesn't work for her. Right. And it doesn't work for the sound of the velvets. Yeah. And so she started, you know, playing the bass drum with the stick and stuff. And the so the rhythm section 
between Mo and Jonathan is just magic and the scenes, you know. So it's just, it was, uh, in my opinion, really, really a good group, and I'm really glad we, we did it. Okay. Um, you wrote a book last year, mm-hmm. Music, Math, and Mind. And I, I, I suppose this kind of dovetails into your your parallel career um, mm-hmm. as a neuroscientist. Is that is that the proper title? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about the book and kind of the, you know, obviously that's the the physics and neuroscience of music is something that you've studied. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt like there were a lot of questions I had. Like, why is the scale do re mi? And why is it spaced out the way it is? Mm-hmm. And uh, why is one sound sound different than another sound? Like if uh, somebody plays a note on a sitar versus uh, a dobro versus a clarinet, why, why can you tell that they're different? There must be physical reasons for these kinds of very, very basic questions. So I made a list of all these questions. And I started, I volunteered to teach a course at Columbia Music, Math, and Mind, where we, all these things have answers. Well, the thing is that they're not taught in any music conservatory. So all these people are studying to be professional musicians, and they don't have the most basic ideas of what a sound is. What is a sound wave? How can there be waves in the air? How can you hear, if there's a wave in the air, well, how can you hear three or four things? And after all, you have only two ears. So how can you pull apart all the instruments in a big band or or a symphony orchestra? And what is it about it that makes one sound uh, different than another sound? And how can you pull those sounds how can you pull those sounds out? And why am I playing some pieces in a pentatonic scale? Does that make any sense? Does it make any sense that we have a 12-note scale or that Harry Parch has a 43-note scale? Right. How arbitrary are these decisions? And what makes something, is there a functional definition, a real math definition for consonants and noise? Can I define what noise is? Why does that sound noisy and that other thing sounds harmonious? Right. All these things have answers. Why are the harmonious sounds pleasing to the ear? Well, this will take a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I could say you can read the book. That, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for curious musicians, mm-hmm. uh, of which I was one. I mean, you know, a lot of it, you know, how does the ear work? How does, how does it transmit the signals in the brain? How does the brain understand what it's hearing? So all this stuff that, frankly, is not in my opinion, in any book, or the ones which are in some books, are done with math that's too hard for artists, because artists kind of tune out once you get past multiplication and division. Right. But but all this stuff is, can be explained with simple math, mm-hmm. with multiplication and division. All the stuff I just said yeah. can all be understood with, with junior high school level math. Mm. So um, that was the task I gave myself uh, for the book. Okay. So you know, if you love music or you perform music and you want to know, why do I do what I do? Why did they teach me to do it this way? Why did they teach me that uh, this is a triad and I'm supposed to play it here? 
and this is a minor triad. Is there a math explanation for that? Yes, there is. And, um, you know, why, why am I taught, the, why does the scale go D, E, F sharp, G, A? Could, couldn't it go some other way? Or why isn't there a note between those two notes? All these things have, have clear math explanations. And uh, when you read the book, you will get them. Now, you may have to read it and then, and then go back and read it, that chapter again. You know, I mean, it took humankind 35,000 years to figure out a bunch of the stuff. You're not going to get it one afternoon on the beach. Right. You are going to get it. It's not, it's not actually complicated. But you, you may have to go through it until you go, like, okay, now I got that. I got that point. Okay. Non-music related question. Sure. Because uh, I'm very curious about your your research and your career. So I had a I had an uncle and a grand my grandfather both passed away or suffered from supernuclear palsy. Yeah. Uh, are these neurological diseases going to be treatable? I, have we, you know, how are we doing on on treatments for? Depends on the disease. Yeah. So. In the uh, really in the 1970s, Parkinson's became much better treated because of the introduction of L-dopa, mm. and now there are um, there's another major treatment, which is called deep brain stimulation, which is working very very well for hundreds of thousands of people, but neither of these cure the disease. They they uh, they simply help a lot with the symptoms. Right. Um, these aggregate kind of diseases like Alzheimer's, supernuclear palsy, and so on. I mean, Parkinson's is one, but it's, it, it's, but there are good treatments for it. The ones which are affecting other parts of the brain, like the, cor like the cortex, at this point are not well treatable. But there is definitely promise. Um, right now, a lot of it's based on using antibodies. I'm not clear that those are going to work that well. There's one antibody treatment now for Alzheimer's, which might show some efficacy. The other ones don't, but it's not it's not going to be a very uh, powerful treatment. So here's a couple of things we need. One, and this will be obvious too, we have to understand the biology better. Um, we do know that proteins are are get are not getting turned over appropriately, and we're all we meaning the field but me also personally think that this is a relatively early stage of the disease and if we could turn those proteins over properly or get them to fold properly we probably would be able to run them off so and i can go into obviously lots of detail on what this might be but there is a great deal of promise there the other thing which is obvious once we talk about it, is that um, we have to do much earlier detection. Because mm -hmm. by the time somebody walks into the doctor's office, most of the neuronal loss has already happened. Right. So we have to get much better at that. And there are some new approaches which may do this much better. Um, they're very new. They're not standard yet. But they're, 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 they're quite promising. And we might be able to do something like take a blood sample from someone and say, okay, from this, it looks like your, your high potential of uh, developing 
supranuclear palsy or Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease or, or frontal temporal dementia or, or what have you. Now, I don't want to paint this as extremely uh, like that it's going to be cured around the corner. Like I was saying, you know, PD, Parkinson's, we can already treat pretty well, at least for a number of years. Yep. And then these other ones, most of them, we can't treat well at all. Um, Huntington's disease is the first, is caused by only one gene. Most of these others are caused by many genes. And we've known what that gene is for about 25 years now. So that also means that we pretty much know who's going to get Huntington's disease. Mm. We still, even with that knowledge, we still have not come up with an effective treatment for, for Huntington's. So it's still, there's a tremendous amount of work to be done for these neurodegenerative disorders. And it's not just for the diseases of older people. It's very analogous for diseases like autism in younger people. In fact, a lot of the, I'm saying in fact, and I, maybe I sh should tone it down, but in my educated opinion, there are uh, many of the steps that can lead to these neurodegenerative diseases. Well, that happens because it happens in old people. If it happens in young people and it happens during development, some of those same steps may lead to diseases, uh, disorders like autism, ADHD, and some of these other schizophrenia right. of younger people. So a lot of work to be done there. Uh, the amount of knowledge, now, now that I've been a professor for 30 years, the amount of knowledge we have now is tremendously greater than we did then. Yeah. Tremendously. Uh, I could go again into a lot of detail on that. But those fields are also, fortunately, are moving very quickly. And I think what we're going to know in the next five or ten years is going to vastly dwarf even all the um, all the advances that have been made recently. Uh, I'm being optimistic, but, but I think probably deservedly so. Well, that's great. David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Brent. You're blowing my mind with all your <laughs> knowledge. I mean, it's just of, of this obscure stuff. I mean, it's just insane. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you, that, that you like all this wacky work. Yeah, well, we really do. So um, this has been great. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Brent. All right. So cool. I can't imagine, like coming anywhere near what Dave has done in my life. Like, like how is there, how are, how is there that many, you know, hours in the day? Um, and I know that they say there's no such thing as, as luck, you know, but it's all hard work and luck kind of, you know, emanates from that hard work. Right. Yeah. Um, but can't help, but think like, as I said, at the outset of the show, he really arrived in New York at just the perfect time for him. Like you cannot deny that it was just an, and it sounds like he struggled, right? And it took time. Um, but there was this compulsion. There was this thing that said, I have to do this. And I have met all these like-minded people, not unlike the story we heard from Elliot too. Yeah. Super impressive guy. Uh, I had about 30 more questions for Dave. Uh, you know, but he's a busy guy. So I, I limited myself to an hour. Um, like I said, fascinating guy, clearly an intense work ethic. Yeah. 
I didn't even touch on some of this stuff. His Music by Animals project. He co-founded this project called the Thai Elephant Orchestra with conservationist Richard Lair. They basically conduct elephants on specially designed musical instruments to, to withstand the weight, all based on the observation that elephants have an affinity for music. You can see some of this on YouTube, and they've also released three albums, but it's elephants playing xylophones and harmonicas and drums. Super cool to watch. He has a project with Brad Garton called The Brainwave Music Project, where they create music played by performers uh, brainwaves using EEGs. The guy has scored operas. He runs a record label. He's a producer for tons and tons of artists. Uh, he's collaborated with people like David Byrne, Van Dyke Parks, Lee Ronaldo. He told me off air that he actually played at Lee Ronaldo's wedding. Uh, Rick Ocasek, Bill Laswell, Rufus Wainwright, Guided by Voices, Pete Seeger, Richard Hell, Marshall Allen of the Sun Ra Orchestra, on and on and on. Uh, and as you heard at the end of the interview, he also leads a double life. He's a neuroscientist and professor at Columbia University in the Department of Psychiatry and Neurology. He's made many amazing scientific contributions along with his massive discography. Um, an album I'd recommend for anyone who wants to take a, a totally wild ride is his 1994 solo album, Smut, for, <laughs> for the Avant label. Uh, the band of his that we talk about in the interview, Kropotkins, their stuff is really cool. Uh, the one with Mo Tucker, Five Points Crawl from 2000, kind of stood out for me. And I've, I've never heard the debut Soldier String Quartet album, Sequence Girls, which came out in 1988 on Fred Frith's Rift Records, but I'm totally on the hunt for that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Pretty amazing. How cool is that story that he told and the fact that he played with both Leroy Jenkins and Bo Diddley? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> he wasn't just in Bo's pickup band or whatever. He was the... The, like the, the the musical mu director the musical director mm -hmm. oh my god yeah it's just fascinating it i feel like such a i don't know a lazy i feel like a lazy sod <laughs> and and a mental midget you know i know but i also feel very privileged to uh to get my mind blown like that yeah and it you know although we've been through these tracks before most of these tracks before i should say it does bring another layer of perception to them when you listen to them and, and you're understanding. Not at all surprised to hear David talk about his work with uh, David Byrne. That book by David Byrne, How Music Works, gets into the neuroscience of music, similar to what we heard in the interview, but definitely not as deeply and like as truly scientifically as, yeah. as, in, the, as in that book, I'm yeah. sure. Um, David David Byrne's book, I think, just kind of brushes upon that. But the thing that I, I was thinking of David Byrne's book, and then also when you read the liner notes for this CD release, it's something that I didn't really realize until this week about how there are these musicians who are not just doing things by feel or doing things because they are compelled to do something or right place and right time. There are these musicians that are being very thoughtful about how music and the actual sounds that you hear and that you create interact with your brain. Right. 
and that's that is not something I've ever ever ventured into like intentionally because I of course I wouldn't understand it. Yeah. But but the realization this week is uh, is something that I hadn't quite had before, where there are these you know people who are being quite intentional and really thoughtful about that, and you know I say I wouldn't understand it, but you know. David has has faith that if I read his book a few times, I might get it. Yeah. So there, there, there you go. All right, let's talk about these tracks. History lesson part two. Okay, Ryan, I'm I myself like I'm not going to go through the Tessellation Row tracks again. Um, we covered those off pretty thoroughly on episode one twenty nine. Uh, I haven't listened to that record since then, so it was pretty cool to revisit this week, though. Mm-hmm. Reiterations, by the way, was our ballot result pick. Yeah, that one, when I heard that one again, it just starts off sounding like I'm in a, a bee's nest. It sounds like I'm inside a <laughs> bee's nest or something like that. Yeah. There are, are a few different movements in that track. Super interesting, though, to, to realize that it's basically the Soldier String Quartet overdubbed three times. Yeah. So you end up with six violins, three violas, three cellos, um, but they only put the contrabass. Ratso's only on there twice. Yeah. He doesn't get he doesn't get the three dub treatment for Ratso. And they're all playing through tube screamers too, which is <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and they and you know we've talked a bit about like not just Fibonacci before, but also in terms of how they tune their instruments, the just intoned and playing the overtones. Very cool to just like really think about that when you're when you're hearing it like. What are the, what are the musicians reading on the page that's causing them to do like very unconventional things to these stringed instruments? So yeah. cool. So yeah, that kind of leaves us with the two versions of the title track. Take one opens the album. It's fifteen minutes seven seconds long, and then take four closes it out. It's twenty minutes ten seconds long. Um, the, the Tessellation Row tracks are sandwiched between uh, the two takes in the same order as they were on the original. So for me, it, like, I hope nobody's disappointed here, but I'm, I'm not even going to attempt to describe these two tracks. It's just too difficult. The, but they do seem to follow kind of the same general song structure as far mm -hmm. as the various different parts in them. For me, I think I preferred Take 4. It's got a little bit more dynamics. Like, I like the, the parts where the strings are kind of swaying up and down in, in unison and the parts where someone's messing with a tuning peg. And That's I, what it sounds like. But yeah. again, these these are not fretted instruments. You could definitely just be sliding up and down That's the neck. That's true. Yeah. I can't I I couldn't I couldn't tell you for sure. Yeah. I kind of like how both versions end by stopping on a dime very suddenly. Yeah. yeah. You can totally picture Elliot kind of conducting this. Mhm. Mm yeah, for me when I listen to these tracks, uh, it just made me appreciate yet again how cool an instrumental track can be. Not all instrumental tracks are cool in this way, though, in that, you know, you can really let the sounds make your imagination run away with itself, right? And yeah. and that, and I just I love that uh, about these tracks. <laughs> Hammer, Anvil, Stirrup, again, the song title, it kind of gives you that baseline for where your imagination is going to go. And I just couldn't help thinking that this would be an amazing instrumental track for like a movie, like a great movie soundtrack where 
everything goes wrong. Oh yeah. Like totally. er- everything, <laughs> this, it is so much tension and you can just picture, you know, people running away from someone in the forest, someone realizing on their face, Oh my God, you know, or, or something like that. In in both of these takes, um, it, they ebb and flow like that, that, uh, it's, it's a very emotional journey with, even without lyrics, right? There's the scraping and screeching of the strings. And there, there are those kind of electronic radio wave sounds like a transistor radio that right. come in sometime. And there's everything, right? There's, like I mentioned, the scraping and screeching, but there's the tapping, pizzicato, the banging the bow off the strings, getting that percussive sound and slapping the strings almost like a rockabilly bass player in times. So, like, I can see how someone could get quite fatigued listening to it because it's a lot of information. Yeah. But it's not like 20 minutes of the same thing. No, definitely not. It takes you on a trip. Wow. Yeah. The cover art is the same as Tessellation Row, only Mm -hmm. it's black and white instead of green and yellow. Yeah, we get some additional info on the cover art this time from the, uh, the LP version. Well, at least, I don't know, I didn't go back and check. My LP version does not have this info on it and it doesn't have a and i don't recall there being an insert maybe there was i just don't have one in my copy it says the cover image is a zapotec indian design from the site of monte alban in the state of waxaca mexico yeah designed by um elliot's mofungo bandmate robert saitsuma oh yeah that's right mofungo yep don't forget about the mofungo same inner photos and liners as the Tessellation Row um, insert that you don't have. So there is an insert that yeah. I don't have. Yeah. Shoot. It's, okay. well, you have it right in front of you there. What, on the CD? Yeah. It's the same. <laughs> it's the exact same. <laughs> so what, man? I'm missing it from my LP version. Yeah. Th- who has, who has my insert out there? Who has it? Who kept it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> who put it up on their wall with pins and then when they brought this to the used record store they left it on their wall you'd have to be a pretty big nerd to add the fibonacci series diagram <laughs> onto your wall <laughs> uh, this one just has uh, a little bit of add-on about um hammer anvil and stir up to the liner notes mm-hmm. do we dare go over to the ballot result oh we dare ballot result what I don't know is is what do we pick? I don't know. Can we pick something from Tessellation as well? Absolutely. Like, yeah. like every, everything's up for grabs except for reiterations, That's right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And digital, diurnal, and ring toss. They're individual tracks, but they're kind of three parts of a movement. I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. Um, the tessel- It seems, seems odd to put Tessellation Row on when we've had that release. I don't know. But then the Hammer Anvil Stirrup tracks, they are so intense yeah i'd go with take four myself yeah yeah okay i can get behind that all right this is going to be one long comp tape man yeah it's one of those uh memorex 110 minute yeah there you go i don't even know what we're going to do next week when we get to this negative land (laughs) release (laughs) (laughs) we'll have to we'll have to just uh you know really really be you know a lot of finesse on the pause button oh yeah when we're dubbing this tape we're gonna have to time this so precisely that pause button you know big time maybe some fader knob work 
Hey, uh, Ryan, thanks as always to Elliot Sharp and huge thanks to Dave Soldier. Super busy guy, obviously. Super important guy, but he managed to squeeze me in. Yeah, so cool. Thanks yeah. both. I kind of scooped it there, Ryan, but what's next week? Next week, Brant, it's SST 233, the Negative Land JamCon 84 cassette. Yeah, we've got a special guest too, two of them. We've got Mark Hosler and The Weatherman. Ooh. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.